Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the Republican tactic of manufacturing scandals to attack Democrats while ignoring the serial scandals of their frontrunner and Fuhrer, such as keeping alive Durham's Russiagate Nothing Burger for five years and Hunter Biden's imaginary crime spree for five years, while one of the House GOP's head witch hunters, Congressman Comer, promised an FBI whistleblower will expose the Biden so-called crime family, but when it came to delivering evidence, the witness apparently disappeared. Joining us to discuss Hunter Biden's plea deal over misdemeanor taxes and gun possession charges and how the point of ginned-up Republican show trials is not to prove cases but rile up the rubes is David K. Johnston, a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump. A 13-year veteran of the New York Times, he's the co-founder of DCReport.org, and his latest book is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. Then we'll look into why right-wing tech billionaires and Trump operatives like Bannon are funding and promoting the campaign of Biden's Democratic challenger for the presidency, the conspiracy peddler Robert Kennedy Jr., and speak with Jacob Silverman, a contributing writer for The New Republic and a contributing editor for The Baffler, covering tech and national security. He's the author of Terms of Service, Social Media and the Price of Constant Connection, and is currently working on a book about cryptocurrency. We will discuss his article at Slate, What the Powerful Men Boosting Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Really Want. Then finally, with President Zelensky cautioning that the war in Ukraine is not a Hollywood movie, and that what's at stake is people's lives. We will get an update on Ukraine's offensive and whether the Russians have learned from their past mistakes and speak with William Arkin, a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military experts whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post and the Los Angeles Times. The best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars. His latest book is On That Day, the definitive timeline of 9-11. And joining us now is David K. Johnston, a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump, a 13-year veteran of the New York Times. He is the co-founder of DCReport.org, and his latest book is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. Welcome to Background Briefing, David K. Johnston. Well, thank you for having me, Ian. Thanks for joining us, David. And since you've done a lot of work on taxes and you've uncovered so many tax dodges that you've been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States, what do you make of the case that was brought against Hunter Biden? This is a case that's been going on for five years, and it involves uh, misdemeanor tax charges and gun possession charges. But the case was brought by a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney in Delaware, and it's going to be heard by a Trump-appointed judge in Delaware. The Republicans are howling about it, including Trump. But just tell us about how serious the tax charges are and what you think of the uh, plea agreement. Well, the amount of money that Hunter Biden paid, he's already paid the taxes, penalties, and interest that he owes, is $1.2 million. And you might think, gee, for that kind of money, shouldn't it be a felony instead of a misdemeanor, especially since there are two tax years involved? But in fact, it's pretty common practice if once caught by the IRS, you fess up, 
you pay your taxes, you pay your penalties, you pay your interest to either not charge you at all or to charge you as a misdemeanant, not a felon. Uh, We make very little effort in this country to prosecute tax crimes. Uh, There are five or 600 convictions a year for federal tax crimes. Now think about that. There are about 170 million individual tax returns, and there's only 500 people that we get convictions of as tax cheats. So there's no serious effort, and there hasn't been for decades, by our government to pursue tax cheats. And the penalty in this case, um, uh, probation for a couple of years, is well within the normal range of how the government does these things. But there's a third charge, and that is that Hunter Biden bought a gun, or guns, I'm not sure, Um, and there's a form he had to fill out. It asks, are you a drug user? He said, no. Are you a drug addict? He says, no. And on that charge, also a misdemeanor, um, uh, there's an issue that I'm surprised hasn't come up. We have in this country a whole lot of Second Amendment absolutists. They believe that no law of any kind can be imposed on guns. And they are the defenders of assault rifles and open carry and concealed carry and all this other modern nonsense. Well, Hunter Biden is pled guilty to this crime. You would expect the National Rifle Association and the other Second Amendment absolutists to be screaming bloody murder. This is an outrage. Um, And, you know, I'm waiting and I'm waiting (laughs) and I'm waiting. Keep waiting. (laughs) Yeah. Not going to hold my breath. I die very soon. Right. Well, the father, I don't know whether you've heard the audio, David, but an audio that the Republicans found and tried to make hay out of. But it's actually quite heartbreaking where Biden is leaving him his son a message and saying, you know, I'm with you, pal. I'm sorry. I love you. I know you're going through hell, but we love you and we'll stick by you. By the way, these tax charges came from 2018 and 2019 when he was addicted to cocaine, I believe. Right. And that's when he possessed the gun or wrote, you know, didn't fill out the form properly. At least a lot of American families, particularly with after the the opiate crisis, they've all gone through this. I mean, yeah. God help you us. You know, the so- Republicans, the Republicans, Ian Pose is the family of part of the the party of family values. Uh, you listen to that tape that uh, Joe Biden's message left on his son's uh, uh, voice machine or voicemail. And it's a father who's very concerned about his son. He knows he's little to nothing he can do because these are things that Hunter Biden has to work through on his own, but he expresses love and support and compassion. And I don't think the Republicans are going to get anywhere by trying to use that to show the further evidence that Joe Biden is the most corrupt president in American history. I tweeted the other day, look, if Joe Biden has committed crimes, he should be treated like any other criminal. If you've got evidence, House Republicans, that he committed crimes, hold hearings, call witnesses, show us what you've got, waiting, waiting. Well, you mentioned... I mean, the the fact is they don't have anything, and they claim that they had this person with proof and audio tapes that Joe Biden took $5 million from the regime in Beijing. And then they said, oh, well, uh, we can't find the witness. 
That's right. Gee, that was Comey huh? said. He, you know, he had the FBI whistleblower, and then the guy suddenly disappears. So he was going right. to. He was going to expose the Biden crime family. Yeah. So, but this is the point, isn't it, David? That this is a Republican tactic, tactic, of manufacturing scandals to attack Democrats, while ignoring, of course, the serial scandals of their front runner, and Fuhrer, Donald Trump. And look at some of the examples. You, you just mentioned Congressman Jim Jordan, chair of the House Judiciary Committee. He just had a hearing today with John Durham as the witness, expecting to really push this whole Russiagate nonsense that they've managed to muddy, muddy the water over. And again, Hunter Biden's inv- investigation was five years. Durham's investigation was five years and tens of millions of dollars. And... <laughs> It was a nothing burger, right? Right. Just like well, Hunter and, Biden's. And, and, mean, and let's go back a little bit to when, uh, to Benghazi. Um, uh, I can't tell you, back then I was doing uh, right-wing radio often. They don't have me on anymore. But uh, people, when I would get on, would say, why aren't you exposing Hillary Clinton and Benghazi? And, and I said, well, okay, exposing what? Well, you know, Benghazi. Well, what about Benghazi? Well, Benghazi. And I said, do you mean to suggest, for example, as others have said, that she kept the military from sending fighter jets? Yeah, yeah, that's what she did. And I go, well, you know, Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. She has no authority over the military, number one. Um, Number two, uh, how would a fighter jet, which has cannon and missiles, save the life of someone inside a burning building? All they can do is blow up that building. Maybe they can attack the people outside, but that doesn't stop the fire inside the building. And people had no answer. And when the final report of the committee, led by uh, Daryl Issa, if I recall, from California congressman, came out, it, it not only was a nothing burger, they literally had nothing, had absolutely nothing. And they do this again and again and again. And the reason they get away with it is that many of their followers really lack critical thinking skills and reading skills. And there's an important number here people should keep in mind. The latest national literacy research, 54% of Americans, more than half of Americans, read at the level of a 12-year-old or younger. And about one in five Americans reads at the level of an eighth grader at third grade level. How can anybody who reads at third grade or even sixth or seventh grade level understand issues of geopolitics, government policy, integrity, law? They can't. It's not possible. And that's who the Republicans have turned to, people who don't have the capacity to understand that what they're being told is nonsense. All right. Well, of course, the point of these ginned-up Republican show trials is not to prove the cases, but to rile up the rubes, and they had done it very effectively. And incidentally, just to follow up on what you just said, David K. Johnson, today the national test scores came out, and they're going down even further. So the country is rapidly becoming an idiocracy. Yeah, and, and but remember one thing, Ian. We've taken care of high school football. We haven't cut high school football. I mean, let's get our priorities straight. What's more right. important? Fan yeah, books, this, this, but not football, yeah. Yeah, this is a, a real core problem. And um, uh, teachers who I know complain and tell me that there are parents who say, you're, you're making my child do too much work, or you're being too, too harsh on my child. 
we're going to get left in the dust if we don't pay attention to that. Um, uh, you know, for, since 2009, I've been teaching at the law school at Syracuse University and the Graduate Business School. And my students from China, as well as uh, Japan and Korea, run circles around the very best of my American students. My worst student from China is better than the best American student I've ever had. And I have lots of really good students. Um, because their societies and their parents demand performance. If you don't perform, they push you aside. We promote people. We we beat up on teachers. You know, we what do we say in America? You know, those who can do and those who can't teach. What a what a insulting and dumb thing to say. The framers of our Constitution and the founders of our country, who are not the same people. There's only a 20% overlap between them. The founders and the framers, they were highly educated people. They knew their uh, ancient world history. They had studied philosophy and uh, natural philosophy, which is what economics was called back then, and the law. And they were, even the drunks among them were learned men. And today, you're exactly right. We are creating an idiocracy. Uh, of people who they can't make change in many cases. Um, they they don't have any sense of proportionality about things, their timelines. And, and there's every every year or two, we get a survey in which, you know, young people, high school seniors are asked which side were the uh, was uh, America on in World War II. And there are all sorts of students who think that we were fighting with the Germans against the Russians. Uh, just appalling. We really need to have a serious discussion about education and what education is. And at the end of the day, education should be teaching you how to educate yourself. So you're not just dependent on what your teacher told you. You need to know how to go find out things and learn about them and know how to separate nonsense, uh, uh, this new AI chatbot nonsense from uh, reality. So just in the last couple of minutes then, David K. Johnson, let's you know go back to today's hearing where Jim Jordan thought he'd, he'd show off Durham and muddy the waters further over Russiagate. And they've been, they've been clever at it because they managed to misdirect, Barr misdirected the Mueller report. And now the press won't touch anything to do with collusion between Trump and Russia, which continues, according to uh, intelligence sources that I talked to. And the record is incredibly unbelievable. And Durham, by the way, when he was questioned by some of the Democrats, he kept trying to squirm his way around all the evidence that's out there, you know, from the, from the Senate Intelligence Committee, from, from uh, the Mueller report, and from right. uh, all of the reporting that went on. My sense is that one of the explanations, perhaps the most credible explanation for the one question about the indictments over the stolen classified documents is, why did Trump do it? Well, he's been doing it all along, and maybe he's doing it because Putin is telling him to. I mean, you know, the former head of American intelligence, the director of national intelligence, General Clapper, once said that Vladimir Putin is Donald Trump's case officer. Yeah. Well, it, it, uh, there's some history here. In 1987, when the Soviet Union was still around, the Kremlin paid for a luxury trip with 
all the treatment you would get as the head of state of a maybe not the United States, but a, a country uh, to court Donald Trump. They had identified him back then as someone who might become a valuable asset. And our government does this. All governments do this. We try to recruit people uh, uh, who are in business or academia or anywhere else who we think may be useful to pursuing our national interest. The problem with Donald Trump is that he doesn't understand that. He thinks, oh, they they love me. They love me. Uh, The New York Times this week has an extraordinarily troubling report by Eric Lipton, uh, who I worked with at the paper. He's an excellent, excellent reporter. It's about how a luxury seacoast resort town is being built in Oman, and it's being built by a Saudi company, which effectively means the Saudi royal family is involved because Saudi Arabia, like Kuwait, is a country owned by a family. It's a family business. And they've already put at least $5 million in his pocket for simply signing some papers. There's going to be a Trump hotel, a Trump golf course, Trump restaurants. Trump will have long-term contracts to manage these things. He may never go there, but he will collect fees from the management of these properties. During the time Trump was president, according to Malcolm Nance, the number one requester of information out of the Middle East in the White House was not the national security staff, but Jared Kushner, Donald Trump's son-in-law. Jared Kushner went repeatedly to the Middle East to meet with MBS, the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, and others. And as soon as Trump is out of office, he gets $2 billion to manage from MBS of Saudi money. The New York Times got a hold of the advice that was given to MBS. And the accountants, the bankers, the Wall Street types, everybody involved said, don't do business with Jared Kushner. He doesn't know what he's doing. He has no track record. His business plan is terrible. His fees are outrageously high. And yet they still gave him $2 billion. How much more do you need to know to understand that something very corrupt went on, perhaps involving the murder of the journalist Khashoggi, who worked for the Washington Post, Uh, perhaps all of the money that was extracted from the multi-billionaire Saudis who were ordered back to the country and held in the quote-unquote prison of the Ritz-Carlton, where one of them was tortured and murdered, and who gave up huge amounts of money, uh, the intelligence that they had not fully reported to Riyadh their incomes and their tax liabilities, that would have been readily available from the United States. We scoop up all this financial information all around the world The head of FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, the organization that we have to do this work, once told me that uh, if they needed to find a $19.95 credit card transaction in some small town in Indonesia to tie it to a terrorist plot, he said, oh, we could do that. We could absolutely do that. You give me enough time, you give me enough money, we will find that receipt. Wow. Well, David, uh, I'm afraid so, we run out of time, but I guess you agree with me that people should stop being intimidated by the Republican muddying the water over Russiagate and look more seriously at Trump's ties to Putin and his ties to it, MBS. Ignore the clown show, pay attention to the hard facts, and be glad that there are some first-rate 
Democrat lawyers on the House Judiciary Committee to ask people like Dunham the kinds of questions that show uh, what's really going on. Well, again, I've been speaking with David K. Johnson, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning investing reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump, a 13-year veteran of The New York Times. He's also the co-founder of DCReport.org, and his latest book is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. We're going to take a restation break. We're back looking into why right-wing tech billionaires and Trump operatives like Bannon are funding and promoting the campaign of Biden's Democratic challenger for the presidency, the conspiracy peddler Robert Kennedy Jr., Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jacob Silverman, who is a contributing writer for The New Republic and a contributing editor at The Baffler, covering tech and national security. He's the author of Terms of Service, Social Media, and the Price of Constant Connection. And he often writes about the politics of tech, privacy, surveillance, and media, and he's currently working on a book about cryptocurrency. And he has an article at Slate, what the powerful men boosting Robert F. Kennedy Jr. really want. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jacob Silberman. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And the fact that Steve Bannon has been boosting RFK Jr.'s candidacy and has had him on his war room, I think that's pretty transparent, isn't it, Jacob, that Bannon sees him as a spoiler who's going to help elect Trump and hurt Biden's chances. But what about the others, the big names like Elon Musk and uh, Jack Dorsey and David Sachs? What's going on with them? I think there's a mix of motivations, potentially. Uh, I think certainly there's there's some of them who see RFK Jr. as the best shot at some kind of spoiler. That doesn't mean he's going to win the Democratic nomination. I think most people agree that that's unlikely, but it could make things more difficult in some way, whether forcing the issue of a debate. Or, or, or something else that we might not foresee. And, and the reason why I think they are sort of instrumentalizing him or see him as more of a spoiler than someone they necessarily authentically support is because people like David Sachs, for example, just uh, hosted uh, um, Ron DeSantis on Twitter Spaces to introduce his presidential campaign, and he's had fundraisers for DeSantis, and his preferences are very clear. Now, there are some people in this world of tech and, and of very wealthy tech moguls and financiers who uh, have straddled parties or um, perhaps maybe unsettled in their allegiances for the 2024 election. I think someone like Jack Dorsey is a little more um, eccentric in his beliefs at times, and he sees a couple of things, including support for Bitcoin in, in uh, 
RFK Jr. that he likes. But I do think overall it's hard to deny that the motive seems to be this is a way perhaps to create trouble for Biden uh, in, in order to boost our preferred candidates. Well, Robert Kennedy uh, Jr. did speak recently at a Bitcoin conference. So is he a true believer? I mean, I find it really hard to believe that anybody could still be a true believer after the uh, collapse of so many Bitcoin exchanges and the Sam Bankman-Fried scandal. I mean, why are they hanging in there? What I thought Dorsey's a pretty smart guy, and he? He founded Twitter and was smart enough to sell it at $44 billion price to Elon Musk. Well, I think there are still some diehard crypto and, and Bitcoin fans, uh, and some of them tend to be very online and, and uh, increasingly politically active. In some cases, they're one-issue voters. And in some ways, Jack Dorsey is the richest example of those. He actually is pretty fixated or even obsessed with Bitcoin and arguably with some of the right-wing libertarian ideas that are underpinned. He's a, a fan of the Austrian school economist Murray Rothbard. So I, I think there are people like that, both you know, a few billionaires like Jack Dorsey and then a lot of um, kind of everyday folks who do have this um, uh, almost cultish uh, allegiance to Bitcoin. And I think people like RFK Jr. have found, I don't know if he really cares that much about crypto or monetary freedom, but I think he's found, like other politicians have, that if you speak to those values, you can activate this small part of a generally conservative base that will be very excited about you. And you can bring in some donations. So that's how I see the, the crypto support from RFK Jr. and from some of these other more fringe candidates um, manifesting itself. But from the outset, I've always been astounded that anybody took crypto and Bitcoin seriously because it essentially means that you pay good money to buy fake money. And as I mentioned, it's pretty manifestly clear that it's just collapsing all over the place. And it's it's been an enormously attractive haven for criminals um, because of its you know anonymity and also... It has environmental impacts because of the massive amount of electricity it requires. So there's nothing good about it. So it seems like there's some kind of zombie movement keeping this thing going. You, I know you've really spent some time looking into it, and you've, you've been looking into El Salvador and its leader who embraced the whole idea of Bitcoin. Do you think it's eventually going to go away, or what's keeping this kind of zombie notion going? Well, it's certainly a smaller market than it was a, a year ago or, or two years ago. Uh, but I think Bitcoin benefits from being the first really successful cryptocurrency and one that has this this base uh, of true believers and core believers. Some people who have benefited a lot uh, from its rise in price because they got in early. It's hard to deny that most people who got into crypto did not uh, lost their shirt in some way or another or came out... Uh, for the worse. Uh, the, there have been failures all over. I don't need to summarize all that. But what we have here is sort of the the, the last redoubt of, of crypto. And there's still a little bit of money slosh around the system. But there's the, the kind of mass appeal that they had hoped for a year or two ago, I think, is not is not there and probably won't be there. So I, I think there is a question of how long can they can they keep the plates spinning like this if more people aren't coming to the table. So I used to interview uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. years ago when he was doing the Riverkeepers and met with him, and he seemed like a really nice guy and 
God, what happened to him? Why did he is he so obsessed with this anti-vaxxing jihad he's on, and of course, crypto as well, and you know he's running a campaign, uh, and clearly, he's embraced conspiracy theories, and he said some pretty appalling things about comparing vaccination to uh, the Holocaust. I guess the question is, you know, what happened to him? Do you know? I think there's some aspects of him that seem opportunist, like any politician, whether it's the crypto stuff or, you know, he was sort of defending Roger Waters and then he turned against him and then he made some very, you know, I'm a friend of Israel type comments. Uh, so there are aspects of him that, that do see, like a lot of, again, like many, most politicians seem kind of opportunist, but the the vaccine stuff he does genuinely seem to believe as, as much as he believes in environmental causes, if not more. Um, you know, there was some interesting reporting in, in um, NBC where uh, Brandy Adrosny, a uh, reporter there, was was interviewing him and she pointed a link to he has this vocal cord condition, uh, which some people might have noticed that he, he has sort of a strained uh, and kind of peculiar voice. And it, it sounds like he's never really saw, gotten to the bottom of why that happened or doctors don't really know. And and that at least is, is some personal element for why perhaps he has his own mistrust uh, of established scientific and medical authority and, and doctors writ large. And, and But, you know, there are ways in which I think a lot of people share um, disgust or skepticism about big pharma, about our privatized medical system and things like that. And they they perhaps have those certain critiques in mind, but they don't necessarily have a vision of a totalizing conspiracy that's really about killing Americans through uh, vaccines and other methods. And and that seems to be what Robert F. Kennedy believes. Um, I mean, he's had I, the vocal cord condition, I believe, developed in the late 80s, early 90s. So he's had more than 30 years to kind of refine these ideas. And he seems to genuinely believe not just, you know, that pharma is sort of a corrupt industry or that we shouldn't have pharma advertising on TV or that there should be universal health care. I think he really believes that um, these vaccines are intentionally made to kill people. Those Nazi comparisons seem to be um, at least something that he, he doesn't mind invoking. But he said some things that many of our listeners who are on the political left that would agree with criticizing corporate power and big yeah. money in politics. And that's what I find extraordinary. Why do these plutocrats get behind him when he's biting the hand that feeds them? Yeah, I think there's been, you know, another sort of bit of context we should look at is certainly COVID and and the general decline in trust in institutions, especially in public public health and public health care institutions like the CDC or Anthony Fauci or the White House. Uh, I mean, that's where I think you see RFK Jr.'s worldview kind of colliding with some of these very wealthy right wing plutocrats from Silicon Valley and elsewhere is that. There is this disgust and and anger and skepticism towards established authorities. Some of it re- very much earned, um, and, and that's where I think it, uh, broadly they they seem to find common ground. The specific stories they tell about what happened or who's responsible, I think, differ a little bit, and certainly differ from the the left, for example, which sees you know more I think corruption, indifference, negligence, and not necessarily murderous conspiracy. But why do you think he's been on Steve Bannon's podcast and he's posed for pictures with Michael Flynn and Roger Stone? He has to know who they are. I think so. Um, you know, he does do this thing where he says, 
that he'll talk to anyone. He is pretty open to interviews, I believe. But uh, and there are pe- people like him, I think, have the experience that they need all the, the media attention that they can get. So they'll go on almost any podcast or any conference appearance. Uh, I mean, I, I found the, the, the photo with Steve Bannon and, and Michael Flynn a little unsettling, but it, it didn't necessarily seem totally shocking or, or kind of out of character of, of the kind of circles he's traveled in recent years. I think those kinds of people probably do have some arrogant sense that they can use him somehow or that they can only benefit from, you know, ha- having interviewed him or gotten, gotten acquainted with him. And I think that extends to the Silicon Valley types who have really discovered him in the last couple of weeks, inclu- including uh, Elon Musk, of course. But the fact that RFK just announced that he is setting up shop on Rumble, which is a, a video startup that David Sachs is a, is a big investor in, right? That seems to be throwing his lot further and further into these right-wing Silicon Valley billionaires. And tell us about Rumble. I mean, what niche are they trying to carve out and who's attracted to Rumble? Rumble started as a fairly obscure Canadian video startup, sort of a YouTube competitor that wanted to give more money back to creators, people who, who put the videos on the site. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, about three years ago, actually, it got discovered by people in right wing and MAGA world. Um, uh, Devin Nunez was an early user, um, and it, it kind of rebranded itself to be more explicitly about free speech and, and anti-cancel culture and, and that kind of rhetoric without explicitly aligning itself with the right wing. But I would, but I actually have an article coming out in the Nation, uh, probably in the next few weeks, about Rumble, which is sort of a deeper dive into its history. But if you look at it, starting in about 2020, it got a lot of investment from Peter Thiel, from JD Vance's venture capital firm, even from Dan Bongino, who's this um, MAGA pundit who, who's on Fox News a lot. So all these people from kind of uh, MAGA business and entertainment and political world started. I, I would argue. Um, kind of recasting Rumble a little bit in, in their image. It still has the same management, but now when you look at who works there and all the contracts that they've signed with with talent, it is a lot of these sorts of people, like Andrew Tate, the uh, ultra-misogynist influencer who's now under arrest in Romania for a litany of horrible sex crimes. Um, he has a, has a multi-million dollar contract with Rumble. So does someone like Steven Crowder, who, who's a MAGA pundit who was recently... Uh, filmed uh, verbally abusing his wife. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of, sort of these right-wing personalities. Trump w- was initially marketed as a rumble personality, though he hasn't done that much on there. Um, so that's really where I'd say it's trying to carve out its own uh, fiefdom. I-, I think lots of these attempts at conservative or right-wing-centered uh, media sites do tend to fail or not really achieve the kind of escape velocity from their own political uh, silo that they would hope for. Rumble right now has a lot of money because they went public via SPAC offering. They have major investors like like David Sachs and, and Peter Thiel, and these other folks. Sachs is a shareholder and on its board, but they are not making very much money. So right now, I think it's a very interesting place to watch because as soon as something happens in the news, like RFK Jr. is kicked off of YouTube, Rumble has the connections and the money to go in and say, OK, come to us. But can they keep that up to become a, a viable sort of political media concern? I'm not really sure. But isn't RFK Jr. being a useful idiot for the right wing by sort of dignifying Rumble, making it look as if they are in some way bipartisan? 
I would say so. Um, I would largely agree. But I think one thing that some people associate with Rumble say is, hey, it's not just right wingers on the site, which is true. I mean, they're they're, you know, people who are more heterodox or some people claim to be on the left. But it, it tends to skew, I mean, certainly where they put their money and who invests in, this, in the company and who runs it. It's a who's who of kind of MAGA world people. Um, and just because they might have someone like Glenn Greenwald, who has increasingly shown himself to be very MAGA friendly, of course, or Russell Brand or, or a few gamers, doesn't mean that they aren't sort of institutionally uh, MAGA aligned, which I really think that they are. As for RFK Jr. himself, like how he might justify this, he does, you know, believe in free speech as a cause and has sort of adopted the way it's presented online, which is that there's this uh, censorship complex from Silicon Valley and the Democratic uh, wing of politics. And it's targeting people and anyone who goes against it is going to be banned. And that's why we have to make common cause with with companies like Rumble. I, that's sort of the argument I see coming from people who aren't explicitly right wing, I would say. Well, just in closing, though, Jacob, I mean, we're, the reason we're talking about this is that RFK Jr. is polling at 20 percent among Democrats. Yeah, I, I think, you know, unless something really dramatic happens, it's unlikely that he will be the nominee. But I, I mean, there may be some circumstance in which they do try to force a debate. And and, you know, Biden is an old guy who prone to gaffes and uh, he may certainly uh, stumble in that kind of public forum. I think he did benefit a lot in 2020 from, frankly, the, the pandemic conditions, which is that he didn't have to be out in, in the field a lot, shaking hands and, and doing a lot of public speaking. Um, so, you know, that's the kind of bet that I think some of these normally Republican or right wing uh, financiers and tech moguls are making. They, they don't know what they're going to do with, with Robert F. Kennedy Jr., uh, to be blunt about it. But I think that they can see him as potentially useful to them. And they have so much money that you know, why not do a fundraiser for him one week and Ron DeSantis a week or two later? Well, of course, there's more shoes that could drop. Joe Manchin could enter the race. Uh, Joe Lieberman apparently thinking about it. Um, oh so stay tuned, I guess, to Jacob. And thank you so much for joining us. Oh, glad to do it. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Jacob Silverman, who's a contributing writer for The New Republic and a contributing editor at The Baffler, covering tech and national security. And he's currently working on a book about cryptocurrency. And he has an article at Slate, What the Powerful Men Boosting Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Really Want. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an update on Ukraine's offensive and whether the Russians have learned from their past mistakes. One
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is William Arkin, a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military experts whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times. The best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars. His latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11. Welcome to Background Briefing, William Arkin. Thank you, Ian. Thanks for having me on again. Well, thanks for joining us, Bill. And we've since this war began uh, in Ukraine, we've talked about, well, you've suggested that it's pretty much a foregone conclusion that this is a Ukrainian victory over the Russians in spite of Russia's and huge advantage in uh, population and resources and industrial base. And they have an, obviously a built-in advantage that they're able to attack and destroy a country next door, and it's then the country, Ukraine, can't really strike back at Russia and Russian cities and infrastructure in the way that the Russians are free to destroy Ukraine. But given your previous analyses, Bill, are you in any way changing your mind? At, at have the Russians learned something? This offensive, uh, even though the full-blown offensive is not really underway yet, at least we don't think so, it doesn't look as if uh, the Ukrainians are making a lot of progress. Well, Ian, we should remind ourselves that uh, this is a prolonged war now. Uh, There's no real movement towards negotiating a freeze or a a ceasefire. That's unfortunate. And, um, And though... It's a prolonged war across a front line that extends about a thousand kilometers. That's about 600 miles. It's also a war of inches, which is to say that after the initial invasion by the Russians in the south, they haven't moved very much at all. And in fact, really uh, uh, lost a lot of territory that they initially have taken. So when you see it in a broad sweep of the 16 months of the war, uh, I, I come away with a with a much less uh, uh, alarmed view. Um, and I also, you know, don't like words like counteroffensive and 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 offensive and learning lessons because this has been a slog of inches uh, from the beginning. Uh, they're still fighting in the area of Bakhmut, which has been in the news in the last few months. Uh, But it took the Russians almost a year to move the 32 miles from Severodonetsk to Bakhmut. That's the distance from Los Angeles to Irvine or the distance from Washington, D.C. to Baltimore. Uh, We are literally talking about a war of inches. That's that's what happened over a year, Ian. And so now we talk about a, an offensive, but we have to remember that this is a spring offensive, like uh, essentially one that was uh, uh, scheduled because of uh, the changing nature of the of the ground uh, and uh, the the uh, completion by Ukraine of the re-equipping of a number of heavy brigades, and though. Uh, we don't know very about much about that defensive on the ground, offensive on the ground. In fact, the uh, the Ukrainian military has been been pretty silent for for about the last two weeks. Um, 
And Ukraine says that the biggest blow is yet to come with the heavy forces still being held in reserve. Uh, the reality is that when Ukraine has undertaken other counteroffensives, say, for instance, to uh, move Russian forces away from Kharkiv, which had happened last September, October, um, the truth of the matter was everybody was looking for an offensive in the far west area, and then all of a sudden, Ukrainian forces had essentially uh, reoccupied that whole area of Kharkiv and, and had pushed the Russians all the way back to the border. So, so I'm hesitant to say that I can tell you for sure uh, where the main uh, effort is. Uh, clearly, uh, the, the, the destruction of the Dnipro River Dam uh, in, in Nova Karkona uh, had a big impact because not only did it cut off an important uh, movement line for Ukrainian forces to cross this great river and make their way further to the east, but it allowed some Russian forces to move further north towards uh, Zaporizhia, up, up, the co uh, up the bank of the Dnieper River. And, uh, and it appears to me that there might be a, a, as much of an offensive going on in this western area as there is. In, uh, in in the Far East, where this fighting around in and around Bakhmut and towards Kramatorsk is continuing. Now, a lot of these place names are probably not familiar to your listeners, but but when I look at the battlefield in its totality, uh, what I see is still inches and a back and forth that not only favors Ukraine in every way. And so I would have to turn your statement on its head, Ian, but also one in which the Russians are, are maybe mounting a effective defense, but the Russians are losing uh, uh, people and, and resources um, at a rate right now that is probably equal to the peak of the battle for Bakhmut that was going on in March. So the Russians are losing uh, a lot more than the Ukrainians are losing. The Ukrainians seem to have the momentum, uh, both in the far west and in the east. And uh, really the only thing that I can say has materially changed in the last six months or so is that Russia is again raising the specter of the use of nuclear weapons with the claim that they are going to move nuclear weapons into Belarus. Well, President Vladimir Zelensky has acknowledged that the battlefield progress is slower than desired. He also said that some people believe this is a Hollywood movie and expect results now, and it's not. What's at stake is people's lives. Now, isn't it pretty clear, Bill, that the Ukrainians don't want to lose any lives? And when you go on the offensive, you usually lose more lives than when you're on the defensive. And uh, it doesn't seem like Putin gives a damn. He's like Stalin. He doesn't care how many people he loses. There's an asymmetry there, is there not? Well, there is. And, and, and it has been one that we've seen from the beginning of this war, the, the willingness of Russian leaders and commanders to uh, turn their soldiers into cannon fodder. Um, but remember, these the Russians are in a foreign country with logistical supply lines that they need to retain. Uh, and, and those supply lines are increasingly uh, effectively being attacked by 
the Western weapons which are being supplied to Ukraine. And you have to read Zelensky properly. He's not saying anything about whether the offensive is or isn't succeeding. He's just saying it's not going fast and and we shouldn't expect that. But there's also a bit of theater involved in what Zelensky has to say about the Ukraine war, which is to say that he is not the commander in chief of the Ukrainian armed forces. He's the president and he's the face of Ukraine in the international community. And his job, as he's set it up from the beginning, is not just to keep the Ukrainian people mobilized, but also to um, uh, control the debate in the West to such a degree, uh, create the picture of danger and almost even imminent loss in order to continue to motivate those in the West, including now in the United States, but to continue to provide aid to Ukraine. So if Zelensky goes out and says, we're being successful in our counteroffensive, if Zelensky says we're kicking their asses, uh, the end result is going to be that people are going to say, well, why are we continuing to pour billions of dollars worth of arms into this country? And there are uh, a number of European publics uh, who are also questioning uh, the degree of of contribution and 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 where the where the war might end. So I don't read Zelensky as contradicting what I said, and that's why I wanted to uh, take a little tour of the battlefield to show that the Ukrainians are exacting a far greater price than the Russians are. So. I wanted to because the rhetoric and the and the situation on the battlefield can also be very different. I'm hearing reports from the Ukrainian military intelligence and, and others parts of the Ukrainian military that they've been complaining for some time about some of the equipment that's coming. It's recycled uh, military equipment. Some of it's not working. I could list a whole bunch of complaints that the Ukrainian Air Force is not even sure it wants the F-16s because they just like to update the MiG-29s, which can be done pretty quickly, apparently, and the Israelis are willing to do it with avionics and weapon systems. So have you heard any to that extent that it's that maybe it's Lockheed Martin and the powerful lobbying that it has, it's pushing the F-16s, or is this really a game-changer? Because if the Russian Air Force is able to deploy... And they have, on a few occasions, and with particularly attack helicopters, have been very effective. The Ukrainians are really, they suffer. So the full weight of the Russian Air Force has not been felt yet. And the Ukrainians are very bravely putting their planes up, but they're losing a lot of them. So what's your reading on the, the war in the air? Well, first, let me go back and just say that the winner in the Ukraine war like it or not, are the Lockheed Martins of the world. And I'm not particularly someone who focuses a lot of energy on the military-industrial complex or, uh, or, or this problem, but we should be honest with ourselves. This has been a boon for defense industry. I'm not saying that they push it. I'm just saying it has been a boon. As for whether or not this weapon or that weapon will or will not win the war, I just think you're looking in the wrong direction, Ian. 
the F-16s will replenish uh, uh, Ukrainian losses, and uh, but so would MiG-29s coming from other countries, from Poland or Slovak Republic or other places. So it's not so much the quality of the airplanes that are being supplied as it is just to have airplanes up there. And uh, the Russians have not particularly displayed uh, any kind of activity in the air that is commensurate with the quality of the military equipment that they supposedly have. I think that's been one of the big lessons of the war, which is that the Russians have not been able to take advantage of any technological uh, uh, superiority that they might have over Ukraine. And, and really, it boils down to a very small scale uh, equipment changes that are not the big war, but the war of inches that I talked about earlier, which is to say that having shoulder fired surface to air missiles or other kinds of uh, short range surface to air missiles are, are far more important to deal with the true killers in this war, the attack helicopters, as you say, and having uh, multiple rocket launchers like Hi Mars and the MLRS uh, to attack Russian artillery and uh, and Russian missiles is far more important than than some big ticket item like some missile that might be capable of hitting Russian soil. But all of this has to be taken into consideration in the context of what the Biden administration's fundamental policy is, which is that it will do everything that it can do to both support Ukraine and also ensure that Mother Russia is not attacked. And that, that's a kind of clandestine bargain, if you will, that the United States has reached with the Kremlin, which says, you know, we're not going to escalate this war. And in exchange, you're not going to escalate this war. And that fundamental stratagem has worked since February 2022, which is to say that the Russians haven't attacked any of the supply lines outside of Ukraine. It hasn't attacked any of the countries that are NATO countries that are bordering Ukraine. And in exchange, uh, the United States has endeavored to uh, discourage the Ukrainian government from sponsoring attacks like the Nord Stream pipeline or the attack on the Kerch Strait Bridge or attacks that are now taking place cross-border with drones. So when I look at the supply of, of materiel that the United States might be supplying, I have to take into consideration knowing this fundamental strategy, which is that the United States has been reluctant to provide Ukraine with weapons that can effectively attack Russia itself. Uh, and, and that much of the uh, sticking point uh, has been uh, either a reluctance on the part of the Ukrainians to agree or uh, Ukrainian actions which have defied uh, this fundamental agreement because the Ukrainians do it anyhow. And, and, so, and so as the United States seeks to uh, stop the war from further escalating, and I think, again, that is the priority, um, that uh, the supply of what kind of weapons we supply to them and also uh, what kind of influence we exert over Kiev is, is, is essential 
And I think it's a background to understanding many of these debates that you see in Washington over which weapon should or shouldn't be supplied or why NATO should or should not exert a no-fly zone over Ukraine or many other things that the Ukrainians have demanded and, and not been successful in getting. Now, has that prolonged the war? Has that uh, made this a long war of attrition in which now we have a couple of hundred thousand deaths as a result? Uh, I think the answer probably would be yes, but the alternative at this point, at this point, not what we might have done a year and a half ago, the alternative at this point is 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 watching the war escalate to World War III and then the possibility of nuclear confrontation. And so we're we're in the worst possible place, Ian. But but I also think at the same time that the basic overall picture has not changed. Ukraine is has thwarted the Russian invasion, is now uh, pushing the Russians slowly out of the country, and Russia's prospects look very grim in the future. Well, William Arkin, I thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on again, Ian. And again, I'll be speaking with William Arkin, who's a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military experts whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times. The best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars. His latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Oh